Lord Jesus, we don't want to ever make excuses. So let us not make any excuses tonight. We'll be prone to. It'll be easy to do it. But speak, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was pastoring in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Had some friends call me up, and uh, as is the life when you're single, got all your friends keeping an eye out for you, right? So these friends called me from Michigan, saying, "Hey, we've met. We've met someone." I knew it wasn't that they were married, so I knew. I immediately knew what they were talking about. Oh, uh, we've met somebody. You've got to meet this someone. Oh, just wait. Well, way led to wait. Never happened. About a year and a little later, I am now in Michigan going to school. One night uh, after Vespers, I was invited to join the uh, group of young people for a social, and we were supposed to meet at Melanie's house. I heard, got the address from somebody close by, and I left Vespers and drove there. Parked out on the street, knocked on the door. I knocked <laughs> answered. There were just two people there. I was the third. Clarified, is this where the Parties was uh, at the right place? Yes, you're at the right place. You're just a bit early. What I found out is in a university setting, when they say after Vespers, they mean you go home, you do some other things, you wait till about 10 o'clock, and then you show up. I wasn't used to that. I'm used to being out in the real world where everything wraps up by 10 o'clock. So I'm standing there awkwardly shifting from foot to foot as Melanie and her sister, who was out of town visiting, uh, sat there and, and uh, dialogued with me a bit, asking questions about who I was, and I was asking about who they were. At some point in the conversation, it dawned on me that they were in fact, or she was in fact, the very one that they had told me about a year plus ago. And so in the midst of the conversation, I said, you're the one. <laughs> but you can imagine caused some consternation. <laughs> no, no, you're not that one, but you're the one that's been, that I've been told about. Was, as they would say, the rest is history. Well, except the rest is not exactly history. There is a bit of history. After we began dating, Melanie and I, there came a point where she decided that there were, this was not the one. As I have always said, all good relationships take some time, and so she took some time by herself. I can't blame her. I was a gunslinging country boy. She was an artist, musician connoisseur of food. She was much more refined than I, but I still gave it a shot. I remember one afternoon sitting in the, in a, 
on a, on a bench. I know exactly where it was, the campus of Andrews University. When a friend of mine, also a friend of hers and her family's, a pastor, hearing my story, asked me, would you like me to talk to her? There was nothing more that I wanted than for him to talk to her. He had clout with the family, a little bit of in with, with the parents. He could have set her straight, called her to a decision, gotten it all over with. God in that moment spoke to me. So zapped to my mind. So everything in me wanted to say, yes, would you just talk to her? God said to me, Michael, would you rather I talk to her or he talk to her? I understand, friends, that people can often play important roles in our life journey. But in that moment, what God was asking me is that I place my life and that I trust him. That I not lean on other people. That I not do it my way, but I do it his way. It's a bit of pride. I wanted what I wanted and I wanted it. God said to me, I want to do it my way. In the end, he did do it his way. And I can praise God for that. However, in that moment, he was asking me to surrender. I wish I could tell you that I learned my lesson then and it's been forever a life of self-surrender. But it's not. The truth be told on the way here tonight. That's a dangerous path, apparently, from <laughs> down to university. But on the way here tonight, I had a situation where God tapped me on the shoulder again and said, you've got pride, don't you? No, God, it's, uh, there's, there's other reasons. No, he said, you've got pride. It seemed like I, there was a thousand other things I could have come up with in that moment. But God asked me to do something, and I said no. And he said, it's your pride, isn't it? And he's right. It was. I want to take you to a story, the book of Dan. Of course. It's in the heart of... Uh, a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is a literary device used by biblical writers. We could say used by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a design in which they artistically place things in an order to emphasize a point. It's, it's a little bit like uh, a triangle in which it reaches a point, or not always. But there's typically a center of the chiasm works up to it. The chiasm seen in Daniel is, da is Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Form opposite ends with a similar theme. And then Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. You've got the fiery furnace. You've got the lion's den. And in the heart of this chiasm is Daniel's chapters 4 and 5. 
with similar themes, mirroring stories a bit. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1 begins with a phrase that we're actually becoming a little familiar with. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's giving us personal testimony. It's an Aramaic language of international business diplomacy. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth. That's an important line in the narratives of Daniel. Indicating that the narratives of Daniel are not constrained to the place and time of Daniel. They were meant for all peoples and all time. And that's something that as a community of faith, as students of Daniel, we have often skipped over. We've moved from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7. Because that's what really matters to us. Except we've been wrong. The chapters in between. While they may tell us, those chapters may tell us the what and the when. The other narratives. The prophetic stories of Daniel tell us how. How is this going to play out? How is this supposed to impact your life? And so in the narratives, you will often hear these lines to all people, to all nations. We can write it off and say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar is just making an announcement to his kingdom. But that's just not all. He is making a declarative to all peoples who live on the earth. That's us. As things continue to progress with space, it will always be us. This line echoes the language. What Nebuchadnezzar uses here echoes the language of Daniel chapter 2. Biblical scholars say there is a lot of comparisons. The poetic language that Nebuchadnezzar uses and what Daniel uses in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar is here in, in, in chapter 4 going to share his testimony. Now we've all heard at one point or another, what is the one thing that cannot be disputed? Someone's personal testimony. And so last night, we looked at how God used a story with repetition to, to send it deep into our hearts. Tonight, he will use a personal testimony. What cannot be argued with, he uses Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in the heart of a book filled with prophecy at the center of a chiasm that includes Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. In the center of that chiasm comes Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's there intentionally. It's there for a purpose. We're going to actually look at both chapters tonight. We'll just touch here and touch Daniel chapter 5. Story number 1 is about Nebuchadnezzar. Story number 2 will be about Belshazzar, his grandson. They are some 40 years apart, the narratives. But Daniel places them back to back in the center of this chiasm, in the center of his conversation about prophecy and God's kingdom being set up. This digs at the heart of what the final generation will have to confront. 
I want you to jump down to verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers, holy ones, declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. Again, God uses repetition. The Most High rules. It's here in verse 17, repeated in verse 24, verse 25, verse 31, chapters 5, verse 21, 29. It's this idea that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate. Get it through your thick heads, folks. You who live on this planet, the Most High rules. Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I had this dream. I had this dream about a tree that grew. Then it was used by the animals. But it was cut down and iron band around its stuff. Nebuchadnezzar struggled with that. But the interpretation was given by Daniel. He didn't want it given. King Nebuchadnezzar insisted. His testimony bears out that while the Most High rules, it may not be seen that there are holy ones, watchers on this, behind the scenes, watching what is going on on this planet. They feel like we're all alone. But God still has his watchers. What's the vision? Verse 13. In the visions I saw while lying in the bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger. Coming down from heaven, he called in a loud voice, cut down that tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee. Then verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given that mind of an animal till seven times pass over. Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride, because of his inward focus and his narcissism, loses his mind. It's a year later. He's walking, walking on the top, overlooking the Babylon he's created. Verse 30. And he said, Well, on the roof. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven and decreed that the dream would be fulfilled. He was stricken with Wolfman syndrome. One Jewish interpreter says, Nebuchadnezzar, was smitten for seven years. Of course, this comes from a Jewish interpreter. For seven years, because that's how long it took for him to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. 
we know and we see the number seven play a significant role in several regards. The tree, though, it's cut down, but it's not completely destroyed. A band is put around it. It's a signal that there is the potential for future restoration. If he accepts, as noted in verse 26, if he accepts that heaven rules, King Nebuchadnezzar can be redeemed. And would you know it, seven years later, he comes, as it were, to his senses. What senses? Understanding his role, who he is, and who God is. And he comes to accept that the most high rules. We can't just play this off as a crazy little story. Pardon the pun. Inserted into the book of Daniel. That's just kind of a little hiccup to read of. Well, that's weird. Comes an animal for seven years. And we hurry off to get to the real stuff. Except this is the real stuff. Let me just leave that sitting in your lap for a moment. Let's go to Daniel chapter 5. Story number two. Story number two. Daniel chapter five is now 40 years later. King Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, obviously the son of King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar gives a great banquet. He's invited all the nobles. He's drinking with them. Verse 2, while he tasted, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 4, then they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Did you catch now the narrative again inserts that there is conflict not just between Belshazzar and these goblets. There is conflict between two gods. Again and again, the narrative inserts these, this great controversy context. He is taking what is sacred and he is treating it as common. But he knows it. he's doing it intentionally. Daniel chapter 5, verse 11. Daniel is called after there is the finger, the writing on the wall. Daniel's call. Twice, verse 11 and verse 14, it's repeated. What, what makes Daniel stick out? What separates him from the rest? The Spirit of God resides in him. Verse 20. 
Daniel is now talking to Belshazzar, saying, listen, Belshazzar, you knew better. You knew better than that. You knew the story. What story? You knew the story of your grandfather, verse 20, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. He was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory, verse 21. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal until he acknowledged that the most high God rules over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, grandson, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Daniel chapter 5 is a dichotomy of Daniel chapter 4. Two stories placed side by side, 40 years apart. But here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's lifted up with his arrogance, his pride, his unwilling to acknowledge who God is. And he loses his mind because of it. Forty years later, Belshazzar had heard the stories. He knew it. And Daniel directly is communicating here that the purpose, the purpose that Belshazzar pulled out those goblins was to make a defiant statement against the God of his grandfather. Or the God that his grandfather had come to acknowledge. It was not just because of their style or their beauty or that he needed more cups. Belshazzar was making a statement about the story of his grandfather. And so when Daniel comes in, he says to Belshazzar, you knew this. You knew better. And you have not humbled yourself. You have not acknowledged that the most high rules. Verse 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. What a terrible moment. You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Ironically, the fall of Babylon that took place that night took place in October under a full moon. So the, the Babylonian kings often chose their own gods. They didn't always serve the same God. But Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had both chosen the moon God to be their primary God. Under a full moon, God brought Belshazzar to his knees. The writing on the wall. You know that Daniel was called in to, to translate somebody. Get Get somebody that can read this writing. Bible scholars point out 
that its translation bears a resemblance to the Day of Atonement language that would have been just five days earlier. Day of Atonement. One where we will be examined. Belshazzar was told he had been examined and he had been found black. Through the night, through the streets of Babylon, that night went the cry. Babylon is fallen. It's over, everyone. Babylon is fallen. The Medes and the Persians, they've conquered it. Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. That's what the streets of Babylon echoed with that night. And John the Revelator is told that there will that cry, that cry will arise again. Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. For all nations have drunk that maddening wine for idolatries. What is it? What is that wine? Verse 7 The glory and the luxury she gave herself, and in her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. Under a full moon in 539 BC, the cry went out, Fallen is Babylon. Why did Babylon fall? Why did God write on the wall that night? Because of a heart that was lifted up, full of pride and unwilling to acknowledge him as the king of heaven and earth. Babylon fell because of pride in 539 BC. And according to prophecy, Babylon will fall again because of pride. She lifts herself up and boasts, I am a queen. It's all about me. Pride destroys. Pride destroys forever. In verse 4 of Revelation 18. This is the final invitation ever extended to this planet. In sacred scripture, this is listed as the final invitation ever. Ever. Like after this, Jesus comes. And after this, there's an eternity of righteousness and holiness. This is the final invitation in scripture. Revelation 18 verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out. Of her come out of who come out of Babylon. What's wrong with Babylon? She has lifted herself up and her pride, her selfishness, and her refusal to see who God really is. And the final invitation goes out come out of her, come out of that way of living, come out of having a heart like that. The final cry, according to the book of Revelation, 
will be an appeal to us about our pride. Oh, as you see, it's much easier if we just read Daniel chapter 2 and then we jump to Daniel chapter 7 and 8 and we just touch on the what and the when. Do you want to know the most selfish, most narcissistic person in Bible prophecy? You. Me. We've been consumed about the fourth beast and the little heart and rightly so. That's valuable information, and we have done our homework well. But the devil doesn't care if we know the what and the when, as long as we don't know the how, as long as our hearts are not changed, as long as we're not converted. But God's priority through prophecy is my heart, not the little horn. I have to sit down and say amen to us. It's not an either or, but we've made it an either or. We've only studied one aspect of Bible prophecy. And the final appeal on this planet will be to come out of Babylon. What was Babylon's great sin? What caused Babylon to fall in Daniel was pride. And you say, well, there's a lot more. Yes, but all of that is a result of pride and an unwillingness to surrender and acknowledge who God is and to consider sacred what he has made sacred. I understand what Revelation is talking about here. There's a whole system that's built off of this, but it's built because of pride. And their pride is no different than my pride. out of her is the final invitation given to this planet you've done everything else except to surrender the pride of your heart it's not something we can do as a as a group it's not a it's not a group activity we don't come together and surrender pride as a group we worship together we can do that corporately collectively we can do we, we can we can do Bible study together, but we cannot corporately surrender our pride, which is why God is so smart, which is why he uses a personal testimony in Daniel chapter 4 to communicate a personal action. It's not a corporate effort. It's not something we do together. You can't, you can't, Work with me to, to surrender my pride. It's personal. And God, in the midst of a very prophetic book, inserts a personal testimony about surrendering pride. And he backs up two stories. Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. One comes to their senses comes to acknowledge who God is. And the other, while knowing all of the truth, chooses not to surrender themselves and acknowledge who God is. 
Are we catching this? God lines these two up. It's you're either one or the other. You can have all of the knowledge. You can know the prophecies. The dates and the times and all the players. But you haven't surrendered your heart. It's an eternal loss. You and I will either be the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 4 or the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 5. Oh, bless you. We are living in a world that is demonstrating the sickness of pride. At every corner, every direction, fingers are pointed. It's their fault. It's not my fault. It's their fault. The culture of Babylon has become very present and real in this nation. And we, of course, would argue every nation. It has shown its ugly face this last year. In terrible and violent ways that pride is no different than my pride Ellen White writing of this prophets and kings says amidst the strife and tumult of the nations he that sitteth above the cherubim still guides the affairs of this earth he's still there there will be tumult and, and, and strife. The culture of Babylon will be very real. The present is a time of overwhelming interest to all living. Rulers and statesmen who occupy positions of trust and authority, thinking men and women of all classes have their attention fixed upon the events taking place about us. They recognize that something great and decisive is about to take place. And the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. We are about to be in that room on that full moon night when the hand writes that judgment has been measured. Where are you going to stand? Your heart Could it be, could it be that Nebuchadnezzar's testimony after the seven years, could it be that his testimony is the testimony of the final generation in a world of turmoil? Could it be that the generation that finishes the work that's ready to meet Jesus when he comes has the same testimony as Nebuchadnezzar? I believe his testimony is prophetic. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34 at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. And 
and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. These are the lines. This is the testimony of a formerly pagan king. The most high rules. Humble yourself, please. Don't let one little corner of your heart be kept from him. This, according to Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, is the final appeal for the world. When Jesus says the gospel will go to the world, do you know who he's talking about? We're supposed to take it and we're supposed to receive it. I have a little book, a little yellow book. Well, at least my cover is yellow. The title is Humility by Andrew Murray. Just share a line from that. A little book. I've read it at least twice, probably three times. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It's not something that we line up with the other virtues or graces. It is the root of all, because it alone assumes the right attitude before God and allows him, as God, to do all. What Murray is saying is humility. Humility is the very foundation of a relationship with God. It acknowledges my position, and it acknowledges his position. It's not one of many. It is the foundation, the root of every other. Ralph Schoenstein, in his article, he's an American writer, humorist, he's a frequent commentator on, on NPR's All Things Considered, he was. He wrote the article entitled, The Modern Mount Rushmore, The Modern Mount Rushmore. He tells the story, his daughter, Lori, she's eight, told him last, he said, he, he's writing it, the first person said, told me last night that she wanted to grow up to sing like Judy Garland and Michael Jackson. These two singers had become his daughter's first heroes he didn't like that he said they're hardly hardly representative of, of who we would want for heroes we don't put them on stamps is there anything more that his daughter could try to achieve or someone else that she could emulate and then he says it only got worse when he was invited one day to stand before the third grade class, about 20 children, with his daughter. And he asked them the question, what were their heroes? I said, give me the three greatest people you have ever heard about. Give me the three greatest people you've ever heard about. And he says that coming back, the answers were boy George. Michael Jackson, Spider-Man, 
made some appearances. And one boy said, God. As Schoenstein begins to reflect how never did Washington, George Washington, or Lincoln, or any other presidential immortal, none of them ever came up. Batman and Mr. T came up. And he said, I just, I just became discouraged. I had expected to hear Spider-Man and Batman once or twice, but I, I, I didn't expect the total absence of some of the great historical figures. But then he says, it's only got worse. The most repeated answer given by the third grade class. The number one on their who do you know that's great list was the answer B. And he said, for a moment, I was disappointed to see the faces on Mount Rushmore replaced by rock stars, brawlers, and cartoons. But I was even sadder to see them taken down and replaced by a mirror. The final appeal given to this planet is the story the stories of Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 4, ironically, the very one who, who built Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was the one who came out. Belshazzar didn't. He stayed in Babylon and he perished with it. The final appeal given to this planet will have to do with our pride and our selfishness. Some of us in our heart of hearts know that we have placed ourselves on Mount Rushmore, that we're the most important. It's all about us. It's all about me. I don't know how else to make it more serious and more personal than to tell you it's in the heart of Bible prophecy and it's the final appeal given to this planet. Don't tell me we don't struggle with it. We know we do. Even if no one else knows. It's the most personal. But it's eternally impactful. I've often asked myself, after walking away, feeling like God had led me to a place to invite somebody, to reach out to somebody, to, to share him with somebody, 
And I walked away having been more superficial. And God always asked me the same question. Why didn't you do it? I'll, I'll make up a thousand reasons. God, they didn't look interested. They didn't say anything. They didn't. And he always taps me on the shoulder and says, it's not so much about them, is it? You were afraid to be humiliated. It was your pride that kept you from inviting them, sharing me with you, me with them, of speaking up for me. It was your pride. It had nothing to do with them. Every time, whether it's getting off a plane or, or just my neighbor, I have to acknowledge, yes, God, there's still some pride here. He's often reminded me of a lie. I don't know if I've ever read it or if it just came. But it's a word that God uses in my mind often, even in little things. He said, Michael, you cannot humiliate the humble and you cannot disgrace the one who has grace. If you are living in humility, you cannot be humiliated. If you are living in the fullness of my grace, you cannot be disgraced. So it really is about your pride, isn't it, Michael? And time and time again, I have to say, God, you're right. He says, come out of that one, Michael. Come out of that. Lord Jesus, There's not a one of us here in this rooftop that is thinking right now, oh, that didn't have anything to do with it. Every one of us know that we've played the fool like King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it's been in much more subtle, much more socially acceptable ways. But just because the society, just because the culture has accepted it doesn't mean that heaven has. So in the center of prophecy, in the center of this description, looking forward to the final generation who are prepared to meet Jesus, is this question of our pride. I pray tonight that every one of us would be Nebuchadnezzar and not one of us would be Belshazzar. For the honor and glory of heaven, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.